You're listening to the Public Safety Drone Flight Podcast, your source of real-world, actionable aviation information for fire departments, police departments, and law enforcement agencies. This is the critical information you need to be an exceptional pilot and help save lives with flight. And now, your host, Public Safety Flight Chief Pilot, Steve Rode. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org. Jim Moore is the power behind the excellent AOPA Drone Pilot Newsletter. It's an exceptional resource of drone information, and he's a a wonderful editor and does an incredible job of crafting the newsletter, dealing with idiot writers like myself, and researching a number of aviation topics to help educate pilots. Jim is also an instrument-rated private pilot and a Part 107 drone pilot, so he knows what he's doing. Welcome, Jim. You give me way too much credit, but thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Well, Jim, you know, Let's talk for a minute about uh, the group of new drone pilots that I love to call the accidental aviators. They got involved in drones, but never had any experience in aviation before. What's the one thing that you think those pilots uh, later wish they knew before they started flying drones for the first time? Um, think it through, plan and uh, use a checklist. I guess uh, that's maybe all part of the same thing, or um, maybe you'll take points off because I broke it up into <laughs> into three. But um, the biggest the biggest thing you learn, I, I think, the most important thing that you learn as a pilot um, of uh, manned aircraft in particular, it's since you know that's my background. Is, is risk risk mitigation and tied to that is anticipation. So everything you do, you want to think through uh, what could go wrong, and if it does, you know what might happen and how might I respond to that. So in the context of of drones of unmanned aircraft, um, part of that is using a checklist to make sure to go through and make sure that. Um, you know, all systems are functioning normally, particularly when it comes to things like batteries. I think a lot of people, you know, particularly newcomers to aviation, probably assume that, you know, if the battery, if the if the system starts up and the battery shows, you know, four green lights, you know, all is well. But experience has taught us, uh, the wider industry, that that just isn't true and that small deviations in voltage between cells or abnormal temperatures or a, a whole thing, a host of things can be out of whack with the battery and it will not necessarily prevent the aircraft from starting up and taking off, but it could drop out of the sky like a rock without any warning whatsoever. You know, batteries are interesting because um, DJI uh, actually says that your battery should be stored at a 60% charge and not charge to 100% until you use it. You, you know, I don't know how many people actually do that, or like in public safety, 
you know, we need to make sure that we can fly right then. We can't pull up at the scene and go, hold on, I need uh, 40 minutes to charge this thing. Exactly. So, you know, it's a no win. And you've mentioned checklists. Great segue. We're going to get to that on the next question. Okay. But, but here's a situation, Jim, you and I are in a very unique situation. Um, we're both manned aircraft pilots. We both had that previous experience. And a hurdle that I run into is that when I say, you know, in the manned aircraft world X, sometimes I'm always afraid that people think I'm trying to say that I'm better than them. When in fact, what I'm really saying is I just had an entirely different set of experience in learning other than just taking, I don't even know what the number of questions is now, but for the part 107 exam, can, can you help explain to our new public safety pilots out there, the type of training that you went through as a manned aircraft pilot that's different than what they're going through? Uh, for sure. And, and it, it's something that we put a lot of thought into when we created the AOPA drone membership and the drone pilot newsletter. And we began in a formal way talking to uh, drone pilots. And that included discussion that, you know, we, should we call them drones? Uh, unmanned aircraft system is a technically correct term. Uh, and the FAA uses that uh, often, uh, sometimes interchangeably with drones, and it really is interchangeable with drones. But we, we came to the conclusion that it was important to use the word drone because that's the word that, that everybody knows. Uh, you see it all over the media and everywhere in yep. different contexts. And it was also important for us to use the word pilot uh, because the word pilot, as opposed to operator or some of the other you know, possible variations, pilot is a word that, that comes with responsibility. And so it's a mindset of being much like the captain of the ship, the pilot of a ship at sea, the pilot in command of an aircraft has a tremendous amount of responsibility and a tremendous amount of authority uh, that, you know, you are allowed. And, and I was just reading in your, your article that uh, uh, for the next issue, uh, you mentioned, you know, FAR 91.3, it gives pilots the authority to deviate from any regulation if it is necessary to meet an emergency. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, the, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sense. But to your, to your question, the, the basics of earning a private pilot certificate, it's, you know, 40 hours is the uh, minimum required flight time. But I know very few people uh, outside of, you know, maybe an intensive uh, program where you're doing it all in a, in a few weeks most people take longer than 40 hours. Um, in my case, it was a lot longer than 40 hours because I first flew in 1986 and I didn't get my, my private pilot certificate until 2005. Uh, and the instrument rating followed in 2011. So in between that, there was a lot of stopping and starting and that mm -hmm. kind of stretches it out. That's not an uncommon story. But it's a, you know, it's a major investment of time and effort and study uh, to not only learn the basics of how you get an aircraft up in the air and then back down on the ground safely, 
but a, a huge chunk of it is learning how to manage emergencies in abnormal situations. NASA calls them off nominal conditions. <laughs> uh, you know, when when the you know what hits the fan. Oh yeah, uh, it is very important to have a good base of knowledge, uh, intimate knowledge of every system on the aircraft as well as the navigation aids and the air traffic control system that you're working in. Uh, you have to know a lot to be able to make good decisions when time is of the essence. And, and then there's that magic dust that I always call. It's the relationship that you had with your flight instructor mm. and the hours that you spent kind of hanging out at the airport, talking with other pilots, you know, you, you, you learned so much from talking to people who had already had 10 years experience and who had made mistakes. And when you bring something up, they would sit there and make you feel stupid because they go, oh, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but you always learned. Yeah. And that's that's something we often say in, you know, in the AOPA world, you know, a good pilot is always learning the definition of being a good pilot is, you know, one of my colleagues once described himself as a 17,000 hour student pilot, uh, which is a really good attitude to have because if you think you know everything, you are setting yourself up for, for trouble. Uh, you are, you're much more likely to make a mistake, uh, much more likely to make the wrong decision under pressure. So that's what we're, you know, most of what pilot training is really about is teaching you a way to think. And as you referred to the, the conversations at the airport with other pilots, I've had the benefit of having, I think there's 36 different CFIs in my logbook, uh, over 550 hours. And partly, you know, there's a real benefit to that because they all have a different perspective, different sets of experiences. And I learned something different from each of them. So it layers, you know, one layer adds to another and it, it really, it's, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily that everyone go out and, and do that, that particular thing that way. But I do recommend that if you, whatever you fly, it's useful, it's great to just sit and chat with other pilots who fly the same thing because they will have dealt with situations you did not. And you, you, you can, it's a lot better to, to learn from other people's mistakes than to, to go out and make your own. And in this world of drones where people can just go to Amazon or wherever and buy a drone, they're just learning by themselves for the first time with no support. So everybody's kind of learning the hard lessons themselves. That's really tough. It's kind of like the, the early days of aviation. I read an anecdote once about the Wright brothers uh, teaching some of the first pilots to fly through the mail. <laughs> They would exchange letters uh, and describe, you know, how you fly an airplane that way. And it led to a lot of crashes, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, some some do well, uh, you know, learning on their own. Uh, others, not not as much. And so it's, you know, again, and, and DJI and not to single them out, but they are whatever, 80% of the world market, but any drone manufacturer, none of them are going to really give you a, a, a detailed um, look at 
every element of there's a lot that goes into these aircraft that we don't know about mm -hmm. you know, that they don't tell us about um a lot of things you have to learn the hard way <laughs> Uh, and it's not, and their interests, remember that their interest is in selling aircraft. Right, and, right. You know, they are also interested in safety insofar as they don't want people doing blatantly awful things that, that lead to some huge crackdown. So, you know, they do have some skin in the game, if you will, that way, but um, they're not. I, I, I'm pretty confident that if I got if I took my Phantom Four out and committed some, you know, willful violation of federal regulations and got got busted for it, DJI could not care less. It's uh, it's not their concern. So with the with the mindset of being a pilot, you know, you're you're responsible for pretty much everything, and that extends to educating yourself and so you mentioned earlier you know you're res you're responsible uh, you have the total authority under uh, CFR 91.3 and uh, the other thing that you also have is total liability for your actions absolutely right so uh, great segue you mentioned the FAA and others are calling the people who pilot drones, pilots. So what's your opinion about how the FAA views drone pilots? Does the FAA expect less professionalism or competence out of a drone pilot versus a manned aircraft pilot? I'd like to think not. Um, it's, I've had conversations with folks in the FAA about why they didn't require a practical test. Yeah. Check ride. The, the, and there are, you know, the, the, let us say that opinions within the agency were not unanimous on this point. Um, you know, it was a bit of a compromise to structure things the way they are now, where all you have to do is, is take a multiple choice test and, you know, in an hour or less, you can be pronounced a pilot without ever necessarily having put your thumbs on control sticks or yeah. powered up a drone. Um, so there's, there, there is kind of that missing piece in terms of the requirements for certification. I call it a missing piece because I think it's important. Um, however, I can also see the other side of it where you have so many different systems that operate in different ways that standardizing a test would be kind of tough to do. So, you know, does the FAA expect less of us? No, I really don't. I, I think they do not. I think the FAA's primary concern is the safety of the airspace as a whole. And they don't, you know, preventing collisions, preventing accidents. Um, that's, you know, really in where, where the FAA is coming from and what, what they've what they've prioritized uh, not so much. The FAA could not care less whether you know how to fly a smooth orbit and you know to take a you know a, a nice video clip for a for a real estate you know promotion package. Um, that's not their that's not their concern, and that is a big part of what it you know in the if you want to be a a, a a professional pilot you know with, you know to, if you want to use your remote pilot certificate in one hundred and seven. 
most of the work out there to this day is uh, photography and video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot that you know we won't get into, I assume, today. But there's su- su- suffice to say, there's a lot you have to learn about cameras uh, before you can do an effective job at, at creating a useful end product. Um, and that's on top of all the things that you have to learn to safely operate the aircraft, which is, I think, still the most important thing every time I fly. All right. So of these three things, how would you rate them in order of importance? Understanding the regulations, aeronautical decision-making, or risk management? Oh, that's a tough one. I would I actually... I put risk management first uh, because that's, you know, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest about it, I, I, I guess I'm not too bothered if someone, if someone flies up to 401 feet, um, you know, is that, are you breaking the rules? Yes. But is there a, a huge you know, qualitative difference between 399 and 401 feet, not so much. And some of the regulations, you know, that are, are, you know, kind of fall along those lines, but risk management is, you know, separate and apart from the regulations. It's about, you know, are you, are you going to be able to safely get an aircraft up and back down and whatever you do with it in the meantime, you need to do it without harming other people or damaging property. So that's, for me, that's job one. And, you know, regulatory, not to say that regulatory compliance is not important, but um, I'd have to to bump that down the list. Let's talk for a minute about your, what I think is your favorite subject, checklists. So I've got a couple thousand hours, pilot in command in the airplane, commercial rated pilot, we don't just go out in the plane and just jump in the plane and push this and that. Uh, you know, even after all those hours, I still reach for the checklist. What What is the importance of having a checklist and using it all the time? Well, people forget, and uh, that's everyone. Um, it drives me a little bonkers. I talk to a lot of pilots who who talk about, well, I have a flow. And by that, they mean, you know, they, they, they've been through the checklist for their particular aircraft a thousand times. And, you know, particularly the pre-flight, um, you know, walk around inspection of the aircraft, you know, that one thing does tend to kind of flow into another, um, you know, you, in terms of where things are located, the order which you do things. And that's, that's all well and good until you, until you, miss something and you know i would I, I expect that this practice of flow was probably involved in a lot of the incidents that that don't necessarily make headlines but you know uh, airplanes start pilots start airplane engines with tow bars still attached to the nose gear all the time or cow plugs <laughs> exactly <laughs> And, and that could actually get really expensive. If the prop strikes a tow bar, you can wind up rebuilding an engine and spending tens of thousands of dollars. That, yeah. Uh, you didn't have to. Uh, and that's, that's fundamentally what a checklist is about is, 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 you know, not missing essential steps. Um, and 
a- aviation is, I think, was the first major industry where they were really, you know, widely utilized and, and embraced. Uh, there's a book called The Checklist Manifesto that was written a few years ago that took a look at how other professions, including medicine, uh, surgeons, for example, uh, started using checklists in the operating room to mm-hmm. avoid making mistakes such as leaving a pair of forceps inside of a, of, of a patient and then having to you know, perform another surgery to get them out. Uh, so you can, you, can, you can take, you know, you can, you, using checklists and using them the right way is going to prevent a lot of trouble and it's, and it's completely worth the effort uh, that goes into doing it. I'd also want to just throw a, a you know, a, a line that one of my instructors uh, burned into my head that a checklist is not a do list. And it's an important distinction because it, you know, particularly early in my career, I tended to use the checklist as a, as a prompt. I would, mm-hmm. I would go through each, I, I would read the item on the checklist and then perform the task or check the measurement, whatever it was. Mm-hmm in that order and the more efficient way to to do it and the more effective way to do it is is to use it as a check after you've actually completed the tasks so you can take a section you know you can take a section of the checklist you know everything related to the engine or in the mm-hmm. case of the drone Good everything point. related to the batteries and you can do those things you know in whichever order you want and use the checklist afterward to just go through and say, yep, I got that. I got that. I got that. And that's, uh, that's maybe for some people a less frustrating way to do it. I think it's more effective also. The FAA recently came out with new uh, Part 107 additions to the regulations. And in that big document, they also had what they proposed as being the sample checklist. It's two pages long. And if anybody wants it, they can go to my site, psflight.org, publicsafetyflight.org, and just search for checklist, and you can download it there. But, you know, when you look at the checklist and go two pages long, there's no way I'm going to do it. But I'm with you. Now, the thing that works for me with checklists uh, is I go through the item, and each item that I go through, I physically point at it. And it causes me to pause for a second and look at it. So I might not say the checklist out loud, um, but I look like a, a fool standing there pointing all over the <laughs> the drone or their cockpit or whatever. Whatever works for anybody, uh, that's what I always think that they should use. Now, in public safety, the problem is you roll up at a scene. People want you in the air right now. It's easy to forget something. But one of those things might be putting in a low battery, not properly attaching the propeller, uh, you know, not setting up some other piece of software. And especially with drones that are shared between departments, here's something I've seen. Police and fire using the same drone. Guy rolls up to a scene, uh, takes off. He's not aware of all the changes that the last guy did in a different department. And then he hits return to home, uh, which should have been named return to tree. (laughs) <laughs> so it's probably jim i think you would safely assume that uh, say that it is safer to spend a couple extra minutes on the ground going through even an abbreviated checklist than no checklist at all 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. One of my favorite checklists in the in the OAS world was uh, written by Joshua Ziering at Kitty Hawk a few years ago. And it boils down to loose juice and roost. And that will prompt you to cover the the most safety critical elements of a drone before flight. So loose means that you're looking for any loose parts or missing propellers or mm -hmm. anything that's, you know, obviously out of kilter. And it usually doesn't take very, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, I could probably do that on a Phantom 4 in about 15, 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, juice takes a little bit longer because you actually have to power the system up and then specifically go to on a DJI bird, there's always going to be a, a battery um, page on, on the mm -hmm. app where you can look at the, the, the current telemetry voltages um, uh, for each individual cell in the battery, uh, temperature, that sort of thing. And so, you, you know, juice means take a look at the battery, make sure it's you know, properly charged uh, as you would expect it to be. Um, you know, and, and make, and, and take a little bit deeper dive just to see if you spot anything, any anomalies, uh, you shouldn't see wide variations, uh, between individual cells. So as long as every, as long as the green bars are all about the same height, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you can have some level of confidence that, that your battery's in good shape. Roost is, Roost covers that return to home scenario. Uh, so roost is about asking yourself the question, if I lose telemetry with the, you know, between my controller and the drone, what's going to happen? What's the, what is the fail safe, uh, that's pre-programmed some, and, and it generally defaults to return to home, uh, across most manufacturers, but not always sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's also a, a, a setting that can be changed. So if you're using a equipment that somebody else has been handling, uh, since you last flew it yourself, worth looking into whether do they change that, you know, return to home to hover in place until the battery runs out. Right. Or they set a home point that was. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so roost is about you know setting the you know setting it up so that in the events that that return to home failsafe kicks in either by you know activating it yourself or the aircraft does it because it loses contact with your your ground control station then you want to have that uh behavior you know i usually set mine to climb to uh, the estimated height of the tallest nearby obstacle trees or whatever, plus 50 feet. Thank you. Thank <laughs> and, and then um, that the rest, uh, you know, I'm happy to let it, you know, return, return to home. I also pay attention to, um, you know, making sure the landing zone is not, I, I, I like my landing zones to be as far as I can get them away from trees and obstacles. Mm -hmm. Just because that that return to home behavior uh, is subject to to error, uh, and GPS error can you know can be unpredictable. It can it can you know you can have you can lose contact with satellites even in the middle of a flight. You can so the the location accuracy can degrade for a whole host of reasons that are beyond your control. So I like to have a nice cushion, assuming that you know this return to home 
behavior, it, it will try to land on the exact point that it, it took off from, but it might be up to 50 feet off or even more, uh, depending on the circumstances. So well, even with experienced pilots, here's something that I love to do is uh, they've been flying for a long time. They're very confident with their aircraft. And I ask them to hand me the controller and turn their back on the aircraft, face me. I'm watching the aircraft now. And I turn the controller off. And they've never dealt with that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing that we get in the in the manned aviation world is, uh, you know, the, the flight in every private pilot with a certificate has at least well, probably 10 times uh, or more. Uh, but at least once had a had a flight instructor uh, surprise them by by pulling the, the throttle all the way back and saying and announcing you just lost your engine. And you're supposed to figure out what to do next from there. So those kinds of surprises are really, really effective uh, teaching and learning tools. So, I mean, this is one of those things I learned early on from experience is the last thing you want to do in a situation where you've lost communications with your drone is then wonder, how does this work? <laughs> so it's just like pulling the engine now when my instructor did that to me the first few times i remember looking at him and going come on <laughs> do we have to indeed indeed I, I i i had one flight instructor you typically these engine out uh scenarios you you uh you know you you get your engine back at a pretty high altitude but uh i had one instructor uh years ago during my final, you know, approach to private pilot certificate, uh, we did a we practiced an engine out, and and the chosen landing field was a was a farmer's field, and I didn't get my engine back up and running until we were right around the tree line. Oh and my I god! Looked down and I saw a tractor, uh, right passing right underneath the wheels, and I don't think he looked up, but he got <laughs> alive. Uh, that that was that was vivid. Um, but the, he was a 27,000 hour, uh, instructor and one of the best, uh, uh, flight instructors I've ever had. So I, I, I have, uh, I have confidence that he knew what he was doing and, uh, um, yeah, we were, we were in good shape, but th there is, uh, there's something to be said for, um, realism, uh, when you're training for emergencies and there's ways that you can, you can do that, you know, with drones, too, uh, also, uh, you know, the training in realistic conditions, you know, that is where the, the real value is at. Yeah. One other little tip is, uh, you got a pilot and you hand him the controller, you turn the other guy around, the pilot puts the drone someplace in the air and then hands the controller back to the other guy and says, I just want you to look only at the controller, but point to me where the drone is. Because, Jim, I, I taught a class once and a high-time high pilot, and I asked him, do not look up at the drone. I want you to go out and fly around that light pole and come back looking only at the controller. And he couldn't do it. Situational awareness is a, is a oft-repeated, another phrase that we, we use a lot in, uh, on the man side of aviation. And, and I think it's, I, I applied broadly i apply it when i'm driving my car uh you know situate you know it means you know having 
you know, constantly updating your mental picture of where you're, where you are, where you're going and what's around you. Um, and in that, that was very useful on one of my first, uh, one of the first times I flew a, a, an Inspire One over the Connecticut River in January with a nice stiff, I was flying off of a boat launch ramp with a nice stiff breeze in my face and it was cold. <laughs> and I, I got, you know, I was, I was having a good flight. Nothing went wrong with the aircraft or the controller but the iPad suddenly decided that it was too cold for it to continue operating. And without any warning whatsoever, it just went black. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even, you know, I thought I didn't for panic for a second because I had developed the, the habit of every few seconds thinking to myself, what's the attitude direction? You know, what's the orientation of the aircraft and where is it? And what's going on around me and that habit of constantly maintaining that situational awareness uh, proved really, really handy because, you know, I imagine a lot of people that would have been a, you know, it, it was, it wasn't like a pleasant moment for me, but it, it didn't, you know, it, it didn't cause me to panic. And, yeah. and that's, and that's the other thing that you, you know, that you really have to learn in aviation is, is how to process, you know, change like that uh, without locking up. So keep thinking clearly is, is always the best way to solve a problem. It's never, you know, don't panic. And that it, it can happen with a drone because you do get your mind engaged in the flight in a lot of the same ways that we do when we're actually inside of the aircraft. Well, my rule in the aircraft is don't die all tensed up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But I, I've I've felt you know uh, I've 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 felt fear of, to to some degree over you know issues like you know drift flying flying you know in a in an urban area uh, where you've got wind being channeled through tall buildings and the, the the it can be kind of unpredictable and you can sudden you know you get a gust that comes along and suddenly. Your, your beautiful $4,000 or more aircraft is heading straight toward, you know, a stone building facade. And it's easy, it's human nature to, you know, to, to be startled by that and, and to, you know, if not, if not full-blown panic, right. at least not think clearly what you need to do next. So the, the, the aviator mindset is, uh, is all about, you know, anticipation situational awareness and and figuring out what's coming next and if you know you're going to be flying in a windy day uh if you know it's windy you're flying in a in a say a city downtown um and, you know where obstacles are going to be an issue and drift can be an issue uh if you if you kind of anticipate that it's coming it's not going to cause you, you you can skip the part where you're startled and trying to comprehend what's going on and go right to okay i need to give it some left stick and keep it away from that building i have a whole bunch of other questions but we're just about out of time so i'm going to turn back and i'm going to watch how i'm going to combine this all here all right okay so going back to loose juice and roost you're a new public safety pilot a drone pilot you've just pulled up at a scene there are 15 people there from three different departments. And 
you don't want to be the guy that says no or says I can't take off, but something's not right. How do you develop that experience, whether that's aeronautical decision-making or whatever, risk management? How do you get the, the gonads to say no? Well, uh, it goes back to, to 91.3 and what it means to be a pilot and the mentality of being you're, you are the captain of a ship and you are the final authority on the operation of that aircraft. Nobody outranks you in that equation. You're, you might be a, you might be a, 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 a rookie, you know, provisional firefighter uh, and, and, and the chief <laughs> uh, is, is the one, you know, demanding that you launch right now. Uh, well, I'm sorry, chief, but I outrank you when it comes to operating this aircraft uh, has to be the answer. Uh, if you, for, for, for whatever reason, if you don't think that it's safe to, to start the flight, um, even if you can't put your finger on why, maybe it's just your gut telling you that, hey, something here is, is not quite right. Listen to that. Uh, do not, you know, bad things tend to happen when you, when you ignore that voice in your head saying something's not quite right here. And it is a, it is, it is a well-documented fact that public safety uh, pilots in particular, whether it's the police helicopter pilot or emergency medical services uh, doing medevac, there's always pressure, and some of it is self-imposed. You you want to help people, you want to get the patient to the hospital, you want to, um, you know, provide the 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 aerial intel for the firefighters. You, you want to do the job that you're there to do. So you, you there's always going to be that that self-imposed pressure. Uh, to get the job done, and and never mind, you know, if you're, <laughs> I'm going to write a book someday about air medical helicopter pilots and the pressure they can face uh, to make flights because from the company that wants to to send out the bills <laughs> to the patients yeah. in the end, and the pilot, you know, a pilot has to be prepared to to put their foot down and not budge uh, if 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 the decision is to if, if you think the right decision for whatever reason is not to fly, then make that decision and stick with it. And don't let anybody talk you out of it. Have you ever gone out to the airport uh, and uh, just said, you know, it just doesn't feel like it's the right day to fly. I have. I, and, and I think some of the, you know, we, we, every flight involves a go, no go decision. And I'm, I'm, I, I feel prouder of some of the no go decisions uh, that I've made than than any of the decisions to go, uh, and I and it's not that I know that something bad would have happened or I dodged a bullet on this mm -hmm. one or or what have you. I just think that my mindset is that it you know that's it's a decision you should you should make and not question uh, if. If there's any, I need to be convinced to fly an airplane. You need to persuade me to actually, and I'm a pilot. I want to fly. I mean, right. it's, it's part of my DNA, but I still have this, this mindset that you need to talk me into this rather than the other way around. So here's uh, another way to handle that, that, that feeling 
is a commercial pilot friend of mine said, we all have a safety pilot. And that just means we got a friend that we can call. He goes, Steve, just by talking through the situation, you will probably end the conversation going, yeah, I just heard myself. Never mind. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, that's 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 happened to me quite a lot. And the just articulating the decision, you know, putting it into words is is will help you think it through uh, even as you're talking. And, and you're right. Usually, you know, the, the correct decision, you do enough thinking and the correct decision is going to become pretty clear. Um, whatever the, the, the particulars of, of the scenario or the situation, a lot of this is about thinking it through. And that, that I'll tie back to, you know, you talked about not wanting to, you know, as a, as a manned aircraft pilot, not wanting to talk down to uh, remote pilots, drone pilots. I, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly on that, on board with that. I think that it drives me nuts when I see on social media and other places, you know, people making fun of remote pilots. Oh, right. you, you know, you, you're 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 something as if they were somehow something less. They are every bit as a remote pilot is every bit as responsible for for the aircraft as any other pilot. Exactly. The, the fact that you don't happen to have people on board also doesn't mean that you don't have the opportunity to kill somebody if you make a really bad decision. Because, uh, you know, even a five-pound drone falling from sufficient height oh, it becomes a lethal weapon. Yeah. Uh, so if things don't go your way, you know, the, there's a lot. The, the consequences can be steep, even if the aircraft is cheap. You can still be a great pilot and just not know what you don't know. Right. And so and and the other aspect is my biggest mission with with the work that I do at AOPA is to promote a safety culture within the unmanned aircraft community that is that mirrors that parallels the safety culture that has taken decades to evolve, but Mm -hmm. has gotten to a pretty good place uh, for for the for the manned operations. And that's that's all about you know what that really means is that everybody believes that safety is important and everybody believes that you know we need to constantly be working to improve we need to pay attention to details and think about what we're doing uh, before we do it and and if that's that culture that mindset um, you know when it's a community thing will will lift all of us up and help keep the, you know, so far unmanned aviation has a really good safety record if you look at it in terms of loss of life. I'm not aware of any uh, unmanned aircraft incident that has led to loss of life yet. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean that the potential's not there, but so far, knock on wood, uh, we've been, we've done pretty well despite, you know, some outliers, you know, some bad behavior. You don't have to search hard on YouTube to, to see some pretty uh, ugly, ugly stuff. But yeah, People will do unfortunate things and then post the video of them doing it. <laughs> yes, they will. But the, if we have a, if we, if we can, if we can grow and develop and foster and maintain the a safety culture in the unmanned side of the aviation world, I think that is, will 
more than anything, more than regulations, more than you know, even insurance requirements and whatnot, the the the, the mindset of being a safe pilot and and being responsible and, and thinking things through, I think is going to do the most uh, to help us all and, and help, you know, the industry continue to grow because, you know, that's another aspect is, you know, being responsible to the, to the wider community uh, is, is an aspect of that. If we, you know, God forbid somebody, you know, causes a major incident uh, it's going to have you know, implications for every remote pilot. Uh, the first time, you know, something truly terrible happens, mm-hmm. you know, will set us back. Uh, but if we all work on the same, you know, for that same, toward that same mindset of, of being conscientious and responsible and professional, uh, that's going to be, uh, that's going to keep us on the right path, I think. Jim, we've gone way long, but I still have a whole bunch of questions to ask you. So we're going to have to do another podcast in the okay. Because you're, you're, you know, when, whenever I hear your name, generally somebody says you're full of it. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been uh, talking today with Jim Moore. He is the uh, AOPA drone. What is it? Drone news or drone? AOPA drone pilot is the drone pilot uh, section of the site. AOPA is the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. It is the largest association of pilots in the world. Jim is editor extraordinaire and um, a very good guy. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Steve. Way too much credit. I appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org.